Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. My name's Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we're talking about the H.P. Lovecraft story, Dreams in the Witch House. It's an often overlooked story, I think. I mean, I hadn't read this story for the best part of 30 years um, before we were rereading it prior to, to this recording. And I'd forgotten what a major story it was uh, in terms of the content, uh, in terms of the length, in terms of what it brought to the Cthulhu mythos. Um, And, yeah, it's been a real revelation to me going back to it. There's certainly a lot of stuff in it, um, of the Cthulhu mythos material in it. But it is a little different to a lot of his other stories in the way that it ties into a lot of the witchcraft myths and so on. Mm. Yeah. More more conventional horror tropes. Yeah, it seems well, to. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, we'll get into that, I think, after we've had the synopsis of it. But I, I think Lovecraft does quite a good job of subverting a lot of the tropes of uh, standard gothic horror, uh, or, or at least putting a science-fictional spin on them that makes them you know, very, very mm. fresh. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the story was written in early 1932 and published in 1933 in Weird Tales. It wasn't met with a great deal of enthusiasm by, well, a number of critics. Um, First off, August Derler. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, if if Derler says your story's shit, (laughs) the chances are it's probably pretty good. Aww. (laughs) S.T. Joshi, not a big fan either. I was listening to the H.P. Lovecraft uh, literary podcast uh, about this uh, as well for preparation. They made the point about that on there, and you know, apparently, a lot of Joshi's uh, objection to it was that he thought there was you know superstitious or religious symbolism in there that was kind of unbecoming of Lovecraft. I, I think we'll go into that a bit more, you know, as, as we we go through the episode. That I again, we, I, I see this as being very much a subversion of that, uh, but yeah. Maybe I'm seeing things that aren't there. Wouldn't be the first time. (laughs) There was an interesting preface in the Barnes & Noble edition of Lovecraft's collected works. Incidentally, this is the first time I actually read the story. Oh, wow. So there's there's an introduction? Yeah, there's a preface. Uh, It basically details when it was written, and it gives a bit on what the editor believes is partly the motivation behind certain elements in the story. Details that it was written between January and February. Somewhat overblown prose, (laughs) it says, given the length of it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but also one that quote seems to betray the self-doubt that Lovecraft was experiencing after the rejection of At the Mountains of Madness uh, there are certain elements mm. in the story things like the, the appearance of the city of the elder things and the, the crucifix in particular which I say we'll, I'll talk about later but th- those are the two bits that really stick out in my mind as just to back up that comment yeah actually I meant to check up on the chronology of that so it is this story is written after At the Mountains of Madness is yes. it? yes yes Right. Apparently, uh, at least according to the Wikipedia article on the story, that the, the, one of the inspirations for this was that Lovecraft had attended a lecture uh, on quantum physics by Willem de Sitter. Oh, God, uh, and didn't it show? It's kind of interesting to think about the timing of this, in that quantum physics was still 
a relatively new field at the time. I think the first publications, if I remember correctly, about quantum physics came around 1910 or so. So you know, it's been around for about 20 years, but it was still you know, in its infancy. It was still a developing field. And he was one of the first, I, I think, science fiction writers to really bring quantum physics into his stories. Uh, and it's it's kind of remarkable to, to think back now that this is the case. I mean, he had a genuine interest in, in science and wrote a book about chemistry. And this story very much ties into as you say, quantum physics, mathematics, uh, and chemistry, and so on. And, you know, Krauss very much bringing those elements into the story, I think. Yeah, but, but at the same time, tying it all in with his... In his with interest, the mythos. With the, yeah. And also his interest in folklore as well, mm-hmm. and the folklore of New England. Uh, and, yeah, it, it, it is, I think, a, a fairly unique combination of these factors. Before we get too much into, you know, the various elements that make up the story, uh, let's, let's have a synopsis of the story. Well, our tale begins with Walter Gilman. Yeah, lovely guy. I like the name, Walter <laughs> Gilman. Uh, a connection to uh, to Innsmouth there, of course, mm-hmm. with the Gilman Hotel. Which even comes up very briefly. In it the does, story. yes. Yeah. There is the one mention, I'll leave. He has read the Necronomicon, the Book of Ibon, and the Onusbrecklichen Culton. I checked the rules today. That would total 44 points of Cthulhu Mythos. We're not told <laughs> that he's read them cover to cover, but I kind of guess, given the kind of guy he is, he probably has. And he had no spells to show for it. That was piss poor reading. And up to forty, up to a loss of 44 sands, so maybe an average of about 20 sand loss. Well, I mean, considering what an obsessed, driven and yeah, self-destructive character sense. he is. Yeah, and he is having brain yeah. fevers and, yeah. um, you know, kind of going to see a, a, a shrink during the, the episode, so... Yeah. So he got all the downsides and none of the positives. <laughs> well, that's Call of Cthulhu, isn't it? <laughs> now, another notable thing is he's read these books. You know, I think in a lot of stories and scenarios, we would have the character just as a regular person and you happen to move to this haunted house. No, he sought this house out. He's, he's mm. particularly chosen this house because it is haunted. Our... Um, Protagonist Walter Gilman moves into the to the witch house. It's a pretty cheap, rundown, Student, dusty old yeah. place. Yeah, Students can't be choosers. It, it reminded me an awful lot in the description of my student Dixon Dundee. It really did. The, well, the, complete with Brown Jenkins. Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing that was really missing was was the the hole in the carpet in the centre of the room where someone had got drunk and gone for a piss. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> yeah, okay. compared to that, I'll take the, the human-faced rat demon any day. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the story pretty much starts off with the dreams. And he finds himself in other places, meeting strange yeah. characters. Str- and strange alien things as well, as the story Shapes. goes on. Yeah, the, these these kind of massive sentient bubbles, which you know, has got echoes of the descriptions of Yogg-Sothoth, mm. this, this kind of moving polyhedron of some kind... Now that put me in mind of the shining trapezohedron, which made me think it was Yogg-Sothoth and Nalathotep. Mm, possibly. Well, Nalathotep, at least an avatar, does show up later, or at least one that's been interpreted yeah, as Nalathotep. But, but, but yeah, in terms of the kind of links between the stories as well, yeah, I think that's a good point. That... But I haven't seen that referenced anywhere else. Yeah. yeah, he talks about organic and non-organic shapes. So the organic ones are kind of like octopi and bubbles... And the, and and the non-organic... Gods. Yeah. And what? Hindu gods. Yes. And the non-organic are prisms and cubes, and so it's kind of geometric structures. It's this strange dichotomy that he, he recognised in his dreams as these two strange things. 
Okay, and the, I mean, this sort of goes back to, you know, the, the idea of this being very much a science fiction story in that, you know, Lovecraft has really let his imagination run wild with um, the idea of what an alien would be. Um, you know, he's, he's mm. come up with, with alien creatures, alien life forms, which do not necessarily represent what we would think is life, um, you know, like these, these just geometric figures. I think, yeah, again, this is a, a fairly unusual approach for its time. It's perhaps something we've seen a bit more in science fiction that followed, but in a lot of ways, I think this is quite a groundbreaking story. And among that morass of strange shapes and, and so on, he encounters Brown Jenkin. Yes, this yeah, lovely guy. This, yes, this, this human-faced rat. <laughs> With hands for feet, and likewise hands for hands as well. Yes. yes. Well, all four feet. Yes. Yeah. Yes, which is quite a disturbing little touch, really. It sure is. I guess he thinks he's dreaming about this character because he's read about it previously. Uh, so back when the witch trials in Salem were taking place, there were numerous accounts of people seeing this same rat with the human face. Supposedly the familiar of the witch uh, who gives the witch house its name, Keziah Mason. He encounters Brown Jenkin, the familiar, before he encounters Keziah. Well, it's just what he thinks is an ordinary rat running across the floor. Yeah, well, the sound, the sound of rats in the walls. Um, hey, actually, it occurs to me, this is another Lovecraft story where you've got rats, running rats in the walls, <laughs> which aren't actually rats in the walls. Yeah, I, I, I thought that too, yeah. Yeah, it raises that same question again. Were there ever rats in the walls? Just the one. <laughs> yeah, except, yeah, well, he's, he, he's, he's not really a rat. He's just a lodger. Well, we'll he's, he's, he's kind of a rat cosplayer. <laughs> As the dream progress and he goes further down the rabbit hole or the rat hole or whatever, he starts encountering the figure of Kaziah as well appearing in his room. And there's a nice touch in this which you know goes into the folklore of witchcraft, which is you know him uh, being uh, pressured by Kaziah to you know in the presence of this this black male figure to sign this book, sign his name in the book, which is taken straight out of witch folklore. In this, you've got this black human figure, which is Nialathet. Taking the role of the devil in you know the the classic you know images of witchcraft. Yeah, he's cloven hoofed even. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Even though they're never seen, but they're heard. Yeah. You know, we never find out why Nialatadev wants him to sign this book, but there are echoes of uh, Drumming Quest of Unknown Kedath in this, in that you know, Nialatadev is trying to do in this what he was trying to do with uh, Randolph Carter in Dream Quest, uh, which is to take him off to the court of Azathoth. Uh, and there's this kind of corrupting aspect of it, but you know, it's all the more threatening for being ineffable. And it kind of feels like it's tied in with that traditional kind of story of a deal with the devil, um, signing his book and making a pact with him. Yes, but without really knowing what you're getting for it or what the price yeah. will really be, which which is quite terrifying. At the same time as this is going on, and we we have Gilman in his waking life, getting insights into. We we, we know he's a student of mathematics, of uh, physics, and we know that these dreams and these visions are giving him insights into the mathematical workings that he's been doing, his interest in other dimensions, his interest in quantum physics, and his realization that a lot of the folklore of witchcraft is innately tied in with this. And he's doing great in school as well because he's going into classes still. We get reference to him you know, wandering around Arkham and going into to his studies and impressing the other students and his teachers with his, um, with his knowledge and understanding of the subject. 
As the story goes on, he starts having more and more strange dreams and you know gets pulled further into this realm of madness. Then, obviously, this starts impacting his sanity further. This is something we may touch upon later, but it strikes me that there are a lot of echoes in this story, particularly with the age of the protagonist, uh, the way that mental illness tends to evidence in people mm-hmm. at that age. I mean, it tends to come about in your late teens, early 20s, and the whole thing about him, you know, for a start, getting all these strange insights pulled further further into obsession which then alienates him from the people around him uh, he stops being able to interact with society around him I and mean, this could be you know any number of psychotic illnesses or even depression and I just wonder whether you know Lovecraft was perhaps inspired by the history of mental illness in his family here you know knew what was involved and used that as the template for what was happening to Gilman hmm. even though you know in this case it obviously does have an external you know uh, cause there's a very strange thing that is mentioned a lot of times in the story but doesn't seem to really have a rationale for it and that's his hearing. His ears were growing sensitive to the preternatural and intolerable degree and he had long ago stopped the cheap mantle clock whose ticking had become like a thunder of artillery. All through the story we keep getting references to his fantastic sense of hearing and the sounds he's hearing and then towards the end of the story he's struck stone deaf and yeah. has to end up writing down conversations with his friend. Yeah. What was that about? I can see a couple of possible aspects of this. I mean, one is the the kind of irony between the fact that he is deafened and drugged in the end, that that's what leaves him vulnerable to Brown Jenkins, you know, before he's you know, been, been able to hear all this coming. But now, you know, he uh, he's he's completely susceptible to you know Brown Jenkins sneaking up on him and ultimately destroying him. Hmm. The other thing is that there, I mean, the very various neurological disorders, a factor of some types of autism, and certainly, you know, I've, I've seen this, you know, in my mother with Alzheimer's disease and other illnesses, where you do suddenly become very sensitive to the sounds around you and you find them quite distressing. And all the time this is developing, the um the witch and Brown Jenkins are forever getting closer to him in his visions up until the point where they almost seem to physically manifest and end up using him very much like a puppet to um, abduct a child using one of their rites. And ultimately, he finds himself involved in a child sacrifice, which he attempts to stop. Well, it, he he sort of really does stop it in a lot of ways because it's it's Kazaya trying to you know do the classic sacrifice of the child sticking the dagger through, and we get this great action scene. His neighbour at some stage to try to protect him from these these elements, uh, the these you know horrific uh, cult elements, has uh, given him this crucifix. Yeah, on uh, a which, chain. Yes, mm-hmm. which he attempts to wield, you know, in the, in the fashion of what we'd we'd come to see in Hammer horror films for you know in, in decades to come. Yeah, you know, actually does have palpable effect. What you know actually becomes useful is the fact that it's on a metal chain and he ends up strangling Kazaya Mason with the. Uh, uh, with yeah, the chain. and while he's doing it, Brown Jenkin kills the baby. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so he stops the sacrifice, the, the kind of ritualistic aspect of it, but then Brown Jenkins just kills the child anyway. I knew there was a reason you liked this story somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then we get the scene towards the end. Walter Gilman, well, he hasn't saved the day. He, he's got rid of the witch. And I guess the ceremony didn't go right, and Brown Jenkins uh, takes revenge on him. Mm-hmm. The, one, yes. the one time the ceremony hadn't gone right, because remember there had been reports of that this had been happening throughout the decades and decades beforehand. Yes, yeah. yes, Arkham was notorious for um, for the child abductions in the, the days coming up to Walpurgis Snack, mm-hmm. which is you know, when this takes place. Mm. 
as he's finally dispatched by Jenkin when the house, I think it's a storm later on, isn't it, that brings the chimney down? Yeah, a while later, well, yeah. Well, let, let's, let's go back to the dispatching boat, Brown Jenkin. Oh, I, I, I think this, this is a great bit of it. After he's managed to follow this ritual, after he's killed Keziah Mason and so on, yeah, he's been struck stone deaf by this. He's finally got some medical help. The doctors, you know, drugged him up to the eyeballs. His friend's looking after him down in his room. Everything looks okay. And then, out of nowhere, kind of stepping through the dimensions, you know, the Brown Jenkin just appears inside him and burrows his way out after eating his heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is yeah. just great. <laughs> and then we get the yeah, we get the aftermath as you were saying, Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we so say the there's a storm. The chimney comes down, exposes the um, hitherto sealed. Um, yes. Yeah, we, we sort of glossed over the the room at which Gilman was staying had all sorts <laughs> of odd angles in it, which you know had sort of two aspects to it. One is that it reflected the odd angles that he was himself interested in representing the um, the, the, the kind of uh, odd structure of, of the planes and realities, and the fact that um, Kaziah Mason had used something similar before to, as a way of escaping her jail cell in Salem. Yeah, the nexus of where different planes of reality cross all converge on that one room. But at the same time, it's also got a very mundane aspect to it, which is it's you know where the the room above is separated off, and that's where it turns out that Kazai Mason's secret uh, altar and and ritual workspace has been all this time, along with the bone pit full of. Uh Lots of little children's bones and lots of rats as well. Lots of rat bones. Uh, is it lots of rat? I thought it was just Brown Jenkins' remains up oh, there. That... I thought there was more than one set of rats. Uh, no, I think I think it was just one rat with a human skull, with the implication that you know his work done, Brown Jenkins had sort of scurried back there and died. Yeah. Or I just I just uh, remember that it was the, the the roof collapsing. I just remember there was lots of rats having been chewed on, by other rat bones having been chewed by another rat. I thought that oh, was okay. the one oh, image right. that stuck okay. with me. Yeah, and that I, was the one large, disfun- uh, disformed one. And that was kind of the end of our story. Pretty much. I mean, there was a lot yeah. of other things going on in there. There was a whole host of people in the house that he kind of came to know. His friend Joe Mazurowicz, uh, the loom fixer, who okay, uh, was constantly praying, fixer, yes. <laughs> uh, constantly praying, and he's the guy that gave him the, uh, the crucifix. There's Frank Elwood, uh, his uh, fellow uh, student. The landlord, Dombrowski. Father Iwaniki. They're mostly Polish, Polish names but yeah, around this time there were a fair number of Polish immigrants in Providence where Lovecraft himself was uh, I think he was sort of influenced by that and this was towards the end of Lovecraft's life when his xenophobia was slightly waning again I think after his horrible experiences in Brooklyn there are a few things that he says about the Poles and this that you know making them out to be very superstitious and you know quite primitive in their ways but at the same time you know considering how xenophobic he'd been in you know a lot of his other stories there's a surprising amount of almost respect for foreigners from Lovecraft. Yeah, I didn't feel that he was uh, denigrated the Polish people in this. He he is a bit kind of dismissive of them as being superstitious and in a a vaguely primitive way. But at the same time, they turn out to be right, so... Yeah. (laughs) And at least they get screen time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, no. No, that's... Considering the way that Lovecraft has given screen time to people from other races in some of his stories, that's not not necessarily a good thing. (laughs) It's sort of interesting to, you know, I think step back and look at this as, on one level, you know, the, the story of Gilman's descent into madness... 
if it weren't for the fact that there were physical evidence, the fact that he brings back you know an item from one of his dreams at some stage, the mm. statue of one of the older things, the fact that yes, he you know he's, he's got muddy feet and the sunburn and stuff like that. If it weren't for that, I mean, you know, the, this story you know, would be a lot more ambiguous. And, you yeah, know, I mean, we're given quite a lot of solid evidence that that this stuff is actually happening. Yeah, but in the end, yeah, they, they yeah, it, everything is proved to be absolutely real. Yeah, you know, Gilman <laughs> may have been mad, but you know, he wasn't delusional. Well, it's one of the stories in which the protagonist is clearly suffering a lot, and he has actually got people recommending him to see a, a doctor or a psychiatrist yeah. of some a, sort, a which is kind of unusual. Yeah. A nerve specialist. Yeah. I don't think he ever actually sees the nerve specialist. Does he? Get, I mean, he's finally sedated by a doctor in the end. Yeah, all right, okay, he's sedated yeah. with a couple of hypodermics. If I remember right, it's the, he's reluctant to go and see the doctor for quite some time because it will mean that his studies are interrupted. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he's, meant, he's referred to on a number of occasions, but I don't think he actually goes to see him. You made reference to the Elder Things there, and that's something we didn't mention in the synopsis, I think. But oh, yes. there is this weird bit when he finds himself on this kind of strange planet, on looking over this balustrade down to some sort of uh, mystic city, and there's all these little, I think, figures on the balustrade, kind of uh, metal figures. Which, yeah, he describes them, he doesn't name them as Elder Things, but the way he describes them, if you've read um, at The Mountains of Madness, you know perfectly well what he's describing. Mm-hmm. And I think he sees, does he not go down into the town and he actually sees some Well, you see, yeah, he sees Kaziah Mason and Brown Jenkin uh, talking to a couple of them. And they're eight and coming tall. towards him. Yeah. yeah. At a later point, uh, I think it's when they, uh, they're going through the wreckage and the... Um, uh, in the attic afterwards, they actually find a stone statue of one of the older things there as well. Yes, it's in her um, in her altar room. There was quite an interesting point made along these lines by Ken Height in the um, uh, the, the H.P. Lovecraft um, literary podcast. Uh, he was he was a guest host on the the discussion they had about Dreams of the Witch House. He talks about the fact that you know the, the representation of the older things in this this uh, story of you know is very very. Different different from the ones in uh, The Mountains of Madness. The city is presented as being you know, somewhat different from the older city, the old thing city in, in Antarctica, that you know, their behaviour is slightly different you know, in, in as much as we mm. see of it. And you know, he sort of makes the point that if Kazai Mason and, and Gilman are sort of travelling between worlds as they seem to be, you know, the, the, the older things are space travellers because they are aliens quite possibly uh, populated another world here and have created a completely different culture. I mean, they're, you know, the same way as, you know, you'd have, you know, people in different cultures across the world with, you know, in different places across the world having very different cultures mm-hmm. that, yeah, they, 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 well, these are, you know, the same organic creatures that, you know, they're, they're not necessarily, you know, they, they, as, you know, the older things that we see in uh, the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, and that's reinforced that it's another, another world, not our world. By the fact that the little metal figure that he brings back, that he uh, that's found in his bed, is found to be made of platinum, iron, tellurium, in a strange alloy, but mixed with three other apparent elements of high atomic weight. And this is where Lovecraft's obviously getting into writing a bit about chemistry. Yes. Higher atomic weight, which chemistry was absolutely powerless to classify. And he goes on. Not only did they fail to correspond to any known element, but they didn't fit in the vacant places on the periodic table. So I can imagine he really liked coming up with that, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, So obviously this was some, you know, other distant planet which the Elder Things had inhabited and, uh, as you say, kind of formed their own, you know, a 
a branch of their society which is quite different to the ones on Earth. Was it this world, or was it the, one of the other ones he mentioned that he visited, where there were the three suns, which is why he got the sunburn? But yeah, that, that, again, it was another thing that very obviously you know, said that this is an alien world he was travelling to. I like the idea, and this is something you know, I think we'll come back to at the gaming section a bit later on, that uh, the Mountains of Madness show the older things to be pretty well extinct on Earth. Uh, that This means that you know, they're, they're not extinct as a race, they're still out there. Oh, totally, yeah, yeah. We didn't talk about the, uh, the things in the sky. This fascination he has oh, with yes. a certain point in the sky, which comes to be revealed as between uh, Hydra and Argo, so as this thing moves, as this location moves through the sky, so his focus in his room kind of shifts. I'm wondering if this is where that planet of the older things is located, maybe. Quite possibly. Maybe if he's drawn to that. Or possibly it's pointing towards the centre of the universe and towards the court of Azathoth. Could be that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's never defined. But um, regardless of what it points to, this fusion of science fiction and horror that lies at the heart of most of Lovecraft's stories, or you know, most of his major stories, you know, have got science fiction elements in them. But I, I don't think there's any one story that quite fuses the, the horror and science fiction sides quite as, as uniquely as Dreams in the Witch House. Or, or even goes into as much detail on the science. I mean, certain certain passages when he's detailing Gilman's treatise on mathematics. Well, I did A-level maths, so at least I know a little bit. But that went over my head, and almost some parts of it were almost impenetrable. Yeah, well, I did, I did maths and physics at university, and yeah, <laughs> it was challenging. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fine. <laughs> but I'm insane, so it made perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. there were times that the yeah, when reading the story, though, I was reminded of that that great line by Tom Lehrer, which is you know, the, uh, uh, some of you you know may have encountered mathematicians and wondered how they got that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I think this story tells us. Should we talk about the black man? Oh yes, yes. <laughs> Definitely. Very much fitting the popular kind of Christian portrayal of, of the devil with his cloven hooves, his black skin. But uh, Lovecraft tells us that he isn't, he doesn't have kind of African features. Which, you know, ties in very much with his description of Nealothotep from the prose poem, Nealothotep as well. Mm-hmm. A book that was popular at the time, and, and we know that Lovecraft read, was uh, The Witch Cult in Western Europe by Margaret Murray. That was published in 1921. It was taken very much to be a factual kind of account of the history of witchcraft and has has since been very much debunked. In it, she uh, mentions a Yorkshire witch uh, in 1664 who stated that the devil appeared like a black man upon a black horse with cloven feet. It's very much what Lovecraft's describing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and certainly, you know, I, I remember my grandparents being quite superstitious in a lot of ways. Um, my, the, the, this is my grandparents on the Scottish side of my family, and you know that, that certainly tied in a lot with their references to Old Nick, and you know, sometimes referring to him as the Black Man. This kind of image of the the devil as, as a black human being. We're told that Brown Jenkin may have taken messages between Keziah and the devil 
so again, it's this this tying in with uh, you know the witches for Brown Jane Kimby and the witches familiar, and he communed with the devil for her and so on. Yeah. So because I, I remember reading uh, a lot of stuff about the uh, the witch trials in Essex uh, during the seventeenth century, there was certainly lots of talk about familiars there. There was one particular uh, particularly famous case, and I can't remember the witch involved, but I just remember her uh, familiar was this rat-like figure. It may have been a cat, uh, but uh, who rejoiced in the name of Vinnie. Tom, um, and you know, it, it just struck me that you know that that, that that kind of naming and that description, you know, and the role of the familiar and so on, must be very, uh, you know, very much in Lovecraft's mind when he wrote Brown Jenkins because it, mm-hmm. it could have come straight out of the stuff that came out of Matthew Hopkins' trials. So, what do we make of all this traditional witchcraft story combining with Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos? Does it work? I quite like that it's. It puts a different spin on what witchcraft is. That he's taking it that human humans are, or humanity is seeing this particular angle and explaining it as one thing when it is something completely different. So they're giving Neartheteep the name of just the devil when he's obviously something far more than that. And that they're seeing this as a so familiar that they conjure up again when it's something more. There's something far darker and far nastier. But it's, it's also the fact that you know, the witch trials came out of a very devoutly Christian time in, in England, in mainland Europe, in, uh, in Scotland, in, in the United States. If you're looking at witch practices like those of Keziah Mason as being informed by the mythos, as being you know, ultimately communion with these alien powers, it makes sense that they would be viewed through the lens of Christianity and interpreted in Christian ways. I think you know that, that adds a certain richness to them. The fact that it then becomes something you know quite almost confusing in its complexity. There, it also you know adds quite a nice, I think, template. If you do any Lovecraftian gaming yourself or write any Lovecraftian scenarios, of kind of looking how uh, the mythos can be uh, interpreted through the lens of other cultures. Mm-hmm. One tangential thing which, which interests me about the story as well is, personally, I've never suffered from sleep paralysis, uh, but I've read other people's descriptions of it. You're, you're grinning. <laughs> I have. Because it's not good. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, th- th- then, then perhaps you're, you're a good person to ask about this. The, the description that of Gilman lying there in bed helplessly watching as Keziah Mason and Brown Jenkins are coming towards him, getting closer and closer each time, reminded me an awful lot of some descriptions I've read of sleep paralysis it, it seems to vary from person to person uh that some people do get this this impression while they're you know, having sleep paralysis that um they that there's some someone else or something else in the room with them quite often it's it's uh, depicted as a hag or you know a hag-like figure well it's certainly we know that lovecraft based quite a few of his story ideas on dreams i don't know if it's necessarily sleep paralysis but it's that power of <laughs> of dreams and the loss of control in dreams I would certainly say it's the specific thing of him you know seeing this witch figure and being helpless to get out of the way of it just strikes me as being so similar to you know, you know descriptions of people's sleep paralysis that I've read hmm. that it just strikes me that you know it can't be coincidental yeah I, I did some research on sleep disorders for a scenario that I wrote um, earlier this year and get yeah, that, that that did come up um, particularly as well that with sleep paralysis it can be triggered for panic attacks so there's definitely a link between fear, helplessness, and this immobility. 
I, actually, it's the only person who has had sleep paralysis. Do you want to actually describe, Paul, for you know, in case the listeners aren't familiar, uh, what um, what sleep paralysis actually is? Yeah, I think uh, I think what I, ex- what I experienced was a fairly common form of it. In that I was laid in bed, I felt I think like I'd woken up. What it was? No, I felt like I'd woken up, but I couldn't open my eyes. And it very much felt like something was pressing down on my chest, like the heavy weight on my chest. And this is a common enough story that something heavy is pressing down in your chest. You can feel it. You kind of imagine your mind kind of goes to things. You're imagining what that might be. Somebody okay. pressing their hands on your chest. A human face and rat tittering in your ear. And you can't. Op- and I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't cry out either. And it wasn't until I, I did manage to sort of make a sound or cry out that I kind of woke up. Um, did, did, did you get the feeling of not being alone, though? I think, well, I, there was the feeling that some, somebody or something was pressing down on my chest. So I wasn't aware particularly of um, another person in the room, but there was very much... Well, yes, I suppose I was that, that it was somebody doing this. You know, it was in Mike Mason's house... Well, say, say no more then. That probably uh, accounts. Did, and did, did he did he put you in the guest room with all the funny angles? <laughs> he did actually. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, Kiri wasn't there that time. But um, and we had watched. Was, was there anything with Kiri's face there? <laughs> <laughs> we had watched Swore about Ye Long. You know? <laughs> that previous night, we had watched probably one of the scariest horror films of all time. Manos, the hands of fate. <laughs> Paranormal activity. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Touching a boat nerve of Scots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think I'd rather watch Manos the Hands of Feet. Well, it scared me. Clearly. Yeah, um, yeah, but you like, no, like the fucking Blair Witch Project. The Blair Witch Project is great. I rest my case. <laughs> but this, I have to say, this, 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 this sensation of um, sleep paralysis, it, it's quite terrifying. And it's quite terrifying because of the apprehension of it happening again. Mm-hmm. because one is kind of powerless to do anything about it when you're in that situation you you know you are struggling against it ineffectually that's that's the point and it happens while you're asleep you've got to sleep and i was worried that it was going to happen again yeah it's part of a twofold again from the the research i found partly the apprehension of it happening but also mm. then that means that you get less sleep and it's partly sleep deprivation which is one of the thought to be one of the causes Oh, gosh. So it's okay. almost like it's almost like a, a, a vicious circle. cycle. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I, I suppose you know if I thought about this ahead of time, I could have checked one of the biographies of Lovecraft to see whether he'd he'd actually reported suffering from anything like sleep paralysis himself. But based on you know the stuff in the story, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he had. Now, one thing we we touched on uh, when we were going through the synopsis was the imagery of the crucifix. Oh uh, yes. And uh, yeah, I, I found this a fascinating part of it. I mean, this apparently is is one of the bits that um, uh, S.D. Joshi really dislikes in this story. Yeah, I, I kind of side with Joshi on that, to be honest. Personally, I don't have any problem with this because, all right, to, to, to recap, in this this sequence in Kazia um, Mason's you know little cubby hole uh, where she's sacrificing the infant, Gilman has been given this crucifix by his uh, superstitious downstairs neighbour. It's a nickel crucifix on a metal chain. In desperation, when when you know all this this weird shit is going down, uh, and you know he's being handed the knife to to sacrifice the child, uh, he pulls this crucifix out, waves it in the face of Kazai Mason, and she recoils. 
I mean, Lovecraft is quite famous, or was quite famously an atheist. This isn't kind of the, the, the classic hammer horror trope of, you know, you, you wave the holy crucifix in front of the monsters and because, you know, the power of Christ is, is driven away. Lovecraft, you know, wouldn't have given any credence to that. For, for me, the reason it works is because Iron Mason is, you know, the, this, this witch that uh, had been persecuted, um, you know, all right, you know, for very good reasons, but mm-hmm. had been persecuted in Salem in the 17th century, was in a prison cell waiting to be hanged, had been, you know, found guilty by, you know, some of the, uh, the biggest religious zealots that that continent had ever seen. For her to be terrified by the imagery of the, you know, the people who were, you know, the, who had very nearly killed her before, or at least, not terrified, but at least, you know, taken aback. Yeah, so you made that connection between yeah. the crucifix and that that time. I'll, I'll tell you what: if lots of people waving crucifixes around had you know tried to kill me before, I'd flinch at the sight of one. I, think I can see your point coming from there. I think maybe it's how it comes across is that it does come across as far too traditional. I and mean, this this is from from my reading. I've taken Kazara as being this figure that knows the truth of reality. She's been to other worlds. She knows that this. Uh, Christian God is a myth that there is no factor behind it and yet why does she then re- recall against something that she knows is falsehood because you know she, th- there's the psychological association there with you know the one time that she very nearly died I can see that as a rationale and I kind of go with it but it doesn't seem that strong to me as far as it being a, a kind of cliché thing, I, I, I think most of what we see is the cliché of you know holding up the, the cross and the vampire or whatever recalling from it and so on. Actually, comes from films that came out much later than this. So you know, it, it, it's not like you know Lovecraft, like us, had grown up watching Hammer horror films. Yeah, you know, the, the, those were thirty years after this was written. Okay, take take it in a different light then. Maybe it's because it's effectively something on a necklace that it is something relatively small and insubstantial yet has such a massive effect. Well, it doesn't have a massive effect in the story. She just flinches back. That's fairly. That's, that gives him the break break he needs, though. Yeah, just for a moment. But yeah, I, I, honestly, if I had something metal and suddenly shoved it in your face like that, you flinch if you weren't expecting it. Mm. Or I might punch you back, which is what I would hope that she did. (laughs) Well, what happens then is a little strange, I would have to say. Because he reaches up and breaks the chain from around his own neck and then uses that same chain to cut off her breathing and strangle her. Yes. How come he can snap it on his own neck but strangle her with the same chain? He's made of strong stuff. Because the clasp would be the weak part and that's the bit that would break. Yeah, that's what I wondered. Okay. We answered your question pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not convinced. Uh, it's the keeper in me saying, "Yeah, that ain't gonna work. You just broke that chain." But but you pulled it that hard. You're gonna break it again. <laughs> but the bit that really worked for me though was the fact that you know the the symbolism of there and the cross and her recalling for it that was just a momentary break and so on. But then he uses the cross to strangle her, and I just thought that was great. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was that was a perfect subversion. Uh, 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 you know the 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 idea of the the holy symbol, the fact that you know it, it's it's good for a moment of you know sort of what the hell's that, uh, and then and then you know it ultimately you know serves its purpose as a garage. Basically, the, the garage bit I had no problem with because I I quite like that, especially when when we talk about adaptations. I really like that bit in the Masters of Horror version, um, but. 
I think it would have been a lot more, I don't know, satisfying for me if basically she'd lamped him one when uh, when he brought brought it yeah. out. <laughs> Puny mortal, slap! <laughs> so you wanted more combat? The thing there is that because you know, High Mason, for all her um, magical powers, for all her ability to you know step across space and time, for her contacts with you know powers beyond human understanding and so on, is a frail old woman. You know, physically, mm-hmm. yeah, there's not much to her. She is, you know, she's described as being old, bony, decrepit. Well, wouldn't you be after that being that old? But, but that's the point. In terms of, you know, her fighting back or anything like that, she's, you know, fragile. Mm-hmm. That's why she has a rat to do a gnawing for her. Yeah, quite right. And, and I, I, I do love the descriptions of Brown Jenkins in that story of, of his loathsome titter. <laughs> I, uh, the, I mean, yeah, all right, Lovecraft overuses that phrase a few times. His tittering and his nuzzling. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it, but I mean, there, there's something about the use of the word tittering in that story that you know, mm-hmm. you, you, it suddenly becomes a very sinister sound. Uh, I was just thinking of the description of Brown Jenkins. And slightly tangentially, there was a Kickstarter last year. <laughs> Funnily enough, uh, <laughs> me thinking about Kickstarters. There was a Kickstarter project last year where there was an artist in the States who was uh, commissioning orders for making Brown Jenkins statues. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't back it, and I wish to God I did. I can't believe you didn't great. back it. They were pretty expensive at were the they? time. That was then the shipping on it was pretty horrendous. But the looking back at it now, having read the story, wait a minute, before, wait a minute. They were expensive. The shipping was. Extortionate! I can't believe you didn't back it. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have two words for you, Matt. Temple edition. Uh, yeah, you're moving on. <laughs> I could just go to a Brown Jenkins. It'd be pretty cool, actually. It yeah. would be. Yeah, but by that point, I hadn't read the story. Like, so I only, I only read it over, yeah. over the last few weeks. It did take me a good long time to read it. Really? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not the quickest of readers, and like I say, certain passages of that were impenetrable. The first time you come to it, I don't think it's an easy read because of the way it's structured, because there are so many dreams yeah. in it, and it's like, hold on, where are we now? Is this <laughs> is this part of his dream, or is he dreaming? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually you know quite an odd story, you know, even for Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft has his strengths and weaknesses as a writer. I mean, his strength was his imagination and his ability to you know fuse together all sorts of different ideas, like he did here with you know uh, folklore, the occult, you know, quantum physics, and so on. As a pro stylist, personally, I actually quite like a lot of his prose. People complain about it being purple. Uh, and dense and oblique. Um, I, I find a lot of it quite evocative. You know, it, it's it's certainly archaic, uh, but it works for me. Where Lovecraft is generally pretty poor is in a lot of the things which make st- you know stories readable to modern readers. Um, so things like dialogue, pacing of scenes, interactions between characters, and so on. Lovecraft glosses over all of that, and and Dreams of the Witch House more than almost any other Lovecraft story I can I can think of. You know, has almost none of that element. The great you know advice that every beginning writer is told you know show don't tell. Dreams of the Witch House is all tell. There's almost no show in it. Um, yeah, that's very much Lovecraft, isn't it? He's telling yeah. you about things rather than showing. But 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 I, I've never been quite so consciously aware of it as I was in Dreams huh. of the Witch House. Um, you've got stories like, you know, say, The Shadow of Rinsmith, where you do have you know, supporting characters talking from time to time. All right, it's, maybe it's not dialogue, maybe it's more monologues and stuff like that. But you have 
you have sort of interactions between characters that I've just mentioned tangentially. I think you might be picking up on some of the things that I find perhaps why I don't really warm to this story that, that much. I, you know, overall, it, I can see it's a, it's a good story. It's one of his, I don't think it's one of his very best, but it's certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's one of his good ones. But it's not one that I kind of relish reading. I think you're kind of touching on it there. Much like the rats in the walls, there are parts of that that have the same feeling. When it's when it's kind of the mundane bits in the house and so on, I, I don't know, I was trying to figure out what it was today and I couldn't really put my finger well, on it. When it gets down in Rats in the Walls, when it gets down under the house and there's all those kind of weird massive vistas of, of other worlds and so on, that's fantastic, I love that. In this one, even when he's in Arkham and he's talking about rowing out to the island in the middle of the, the river and making some sketches of some of the weird angles of the stones. I love that bit. But a lot of the stuff in the house when it's all very kind of woolly and maybe it's a dream, maybe it isn't a dream and it's angles and like, I don't know, it doesn't really grab me. Well, I think there are two problems with those scenes. One is that they're a bit repetitive. Yeah. And the other is... Well, not only repetitive, but a bit lacking definition they're a bit well that, that, that was the other point i was about to make right. the, the fact that they read like outlines for a story rather than a story the kind of thing which i think most writers if they were you know right outlining the story ahead of time would sit down and write as notes themselves and then flesh out and and, and write as you know um as as more standard prose and like i said interactions between characters dialogue stuff like that but you know there isn't a single line of dialogue in this story not one Quite, really yeah Quite amusing in that sense, then, because he describes geometric shapes like drawings floating in air. <laughs> yes, but no, I, 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 I'm, I stand to be corrected on this. But I remember a few times, you know, going through this story and seeing, you know, summaries of conversations. So it's all reported to speech. Yeah. No. I, I, I don't remember ever seeing one line of dialogue in that story. Should we just say what we thought of the story before we go on to the adaptations? Because that that was yeah. my kind of impression was that it's a good story good as opposed to outstanding and I didn't really relish reading it mm. I'm with you no, on that I actually quite enjoyed reading it I quickly sort of came to accept it for what it was if you're a Lovecraft fan that's something you have to do quite often that Lovecraft is you know, often a pretty lousy prose stylist if you can accept that and if you can read it and enjoy it for the ideas and, and the, the descriptions in there, then you know, you'll get a lot out of the story. And personally, it worked for me perfectly well on that level. I didn't get that kind of evocation of kind of cosmic horror. and, and, and He's kind of referring to them in the story, but I didn't really feel it like I do in, in um, you know, say, Dunwich Horror or Call of Cthulhu. I get this kind of um, feeling of, of Cthulhu mythos, for want of a better term. In this, it seemed a very different take on it, and I didn't really, it didn't really gel for me. Well, I think there was a degree of helplessness and inevitability and doom to this story that, that, that perhaps offset that. But I, I don't know whether you know there was the sense of cosmic horror. It reminded me in a lot, in a lot of ways more of his Dreamland stories, which you know perhaps is appropriate enough for me considering the subject is dreams. In that there was a sense of wonder, there was a sense of alien beauty, an almost kind of travelogue aspect of you know to the dreams themselves. But I don't think I mean you know for all the building horror, you know the situation is doom in the hands of Brown Jenkins. I don't think Gilman's experiences were. Until that point, the dreams themselves, I don't think, were particularly horrific. 
Um, and I, I'm not entirely sure they were meant to be in the story. They were meant to be weird. They were meant to be... Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 so his dreams up until that point were a kind of a dreamlands type experience. Almost, yeah. A kind well, of alternative it, dreamlands. Well, but... he, he said they were absolutely real because he was physically going there, but but they had that kind of dreamlands you know, type mm. feel to them. Mm-hmm. I suppose my, my impression of it was that, A, it was too long. Um, it had a lot of just jarring concepts the, the the dreams themselves don't seem to fit with the rest of the story hmm. that that seemed like they could be may have been a prototype idea for another story especially with that um preface that i mentioned from the uh, from the edition i read from that it very much seemed that oh at the mountains of madness have been rejected i quite like the other things i'll try and get them into a story anyway i can right yes that uh, they did seem far too tangential and just not fitting with the rest of the story at all so full of good ideas and otherwise but poorly executed that was my overarching impression of it. I think for me, maybe the um, the crossover with the traditional occult stories kind of took some of the ma- magic out of it for me. Oh, you, you see, that, that that worked very well for me for the reasons we've talked about before, about the fact that you know, it, it sort of you know, takes you behind the curtain of, of you know, what a lot of people you know, consider to be you know, witch law mm. um, and you know, shows you, you know, the cosmic truth behind mm-hmm. it. See, that, that's where I find the, the kind of the split between them, where I almost think it's, he's used ideas that I think he could have put into other stories. That the, into the relationship between science and dreams works fairly well, if that had been a concept he developed in that little isolated bubble. And then the mythos version of occultism, that works as a nice um, combination. But trying to mm, whack the two together things. just doesn't work. So you're right, yeah, so he's got a lot yeah. of things in there. It's all, a very busy story, yes. All mm-hmm. together. Because yeah, I was surprised when, when the whole uh, thing about the Elder Things came in. It was like, oh, what, there are Elder Things in this as well? Yeah. There's not enough in here already? Yeah, yeah, it is a bit of a kitchen sink story. So what, what you're trying to say here is that August Erlith was right. Hmm? The, 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 the listener probably doesn't have that kind of get the impression of that suddenly rabbit in headlights. What? <laughs> Look, what I've got. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, um, Lovecraft sent the manuscript off to August Derleth uh, for an opinion, and Derleth wrote back and said, No, it's not very good. And uh, oh, you know, look, Lovecraft look. almost abandoned. Uh, in fact, Lovecraft you know, was going to abandon it completely at that stage, but then Derleth actually sent it off to Weird Tales uh, without telling him. I wouldn't have told him it wasn't any good. I would have given him room for it. What, what he could have improved and make two stories out of it, get two submissions and two pay packets. Uh. <laughs> Lovecraft wasn't really all about the pay packet, though, was he? No. <laughs> okay, well, much like uh, Matt's suggestion for H.P. Lovecraft, <laughs> uh, that he could have chopped this into two stories, I think we're going to carry on next time and uh, take quite a different tack and talk about the adaptations of Dreams in the Witch House. Of now, which I mean, there are many. Of which there are indeed many, as I mentioned. If you stick that title into Google, you'll find there's a whole host of things that have been inspired by this story. So, uh, until then, um, you can find us on blasphemoustomes.com. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on G Plus and Facebook. Come over and leave us a message. Tell us what your opinion of uh, the story is. And uh, we'll see you next time. It's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Japanese